Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, November 16th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Brad, what is it like to edit The weekend? Um, Slow and <laughs> not very exciting most of the time. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, let's jump into the news. Uh, let's let's start off with a, a bit of sad news, and that is the death of William Goldman, a Oscar-winning screenwriter. And uh, Ben, you wrote up the obituary for SlashFilm.com. What do we know? Yeah, so William Goldman uh, has died at the age of 87. He won two Oscars for screenwriting uh, for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and for All the President's Men. He was not just a screenwriter. He wrote novels and plays, and uh, he was a master. He was one of those guys that everybody knew and everybody loved, and he uh, was, I mean, arguably as famous in Hollywood for his statement about the inner workings of the inter- entertainment industry the quote the hit the famous quote that he said was nobody knows anything and people quote that all the time because it's one of the truest things that's ever been said about uh, about the entertainment industry as a whole um goldman was a, a i mean a terrific writer he wrote marathon man and the great waldo pepper and the misery adaptation from the stephen king novel i mean he, he has a, a long list of credits and um, it's kind of sad to see him go. He apparently died of uh, complications from colon cancer and pneumonia. Uh, personally, I mean, I think The Princess Bride is like a perfect uh, movie. I talked about reading that book for the first time not too long ago on Slash Film Daily. So I was just starting to get into Goldman's writer uh, work as a writer, um, as, as a novelist, I should say. Um, and actually, yesterday, I just added adventures in the screen trade to my amazon wish list which is a a sort of a memoir book that he wrote that um has like a ton of cool stories about his time in hollywood and like behind the scenes stuff and it it was like one of those uh bibles that 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 people would use that book is so good uh when i when i wanted to be a screenwriter i read uh that book adventures in screen trade he also wrote uh, a book called which lie did i tell 
mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like the sequel to that book, and it's not as good. But both of those books are filled with stories of, I guess, maybe like Hollywood from the 1980s and 1990s at this point. So it might be a little outdated, but it really isn't. Um, it, it's filled with, you know, how ridiculous the job of screenwriting and, uh, you know. How ridiculous Hollywood is! Um, yeah. I would highly recommend both those books if if you're interesting interested in that sort of thing. It, it's not like really a screenwriting book, but yeah, like you said, a memoir from a a popular screenwriter. And in addition to all the movies he wrote, like he was like one of those guys that was, you know, one of those guys that was hired by big Hollywood studios for the longest time to come in and like touch up. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he was, like, the, the biggest, like, you know, touch-up guy in the industry. So his fingerprints have been on not just, you know, the big movies you mentioned, but, like, probably a lot of the biggest movies from the 80s and 90s uh, that you love and know. Yeah, and he also was one of the, the first screenwriters to get, like, public recognition. You know, for a long time in Hollywood, people didn't know who screenwriters were. I mean, now everybody has Twitter accounts and it's, you know, the the dynamics have changed so drastically. But in the time when Goldman was writing, I mean, he came up in like the 1960s and he got, I think it was like $400,000 for the Butch Cassidy script. And there was a big bidding war about that. And he became the highest paid screenwriter uh, of all time at that point. And sort of became like a celebrity, like a, a screenwriter celebrity, which, you know, in an era when that wasn't even a thing yet. Yeah. Um, Brad, do you have any uh, memories of any of the, the, the things that William Goldman has uh, produced over the years? Uh, you mean, I, I, a lot of mine are, you know, just the same as everybody else's. You know, it's uh, the, all these classic movies that you not only he, uh, grow up on, but they're the kind of movies that you examine uh, in film school, you know, because like, uh, especially, you know, things like Butch, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men. Th- these are all such integral and important movies that you you can't, uh, you know, shake a stick without hearing about something that William Goldman did and how influential he was on uh, screenwriting and filmmaking in general. For sure. Um, and I also think I also had another book uh, that was called like William Goldman four screenplays, five screenplays, something like that. Where I had screenplays and the essays, that one was also good. So if you're into, I don't know, if you're into screenwriting, I think like uh, you, you should check these out because especially to, to, to learn a bit about how the industry works, even though it's changed so much, I think a lot of it still kind of uh, is true in a broader sense. Um, but it, it's sad uh, that he is dead at uh, age 87? Yes. 87. Um, let's move our eyes to Creed 2, which, uh, is coming out and the first reviews have hit the web. So Brad, is Creed 2 as good, if not better than Creed 1? Uh, well, being better than Creed 1 was a a tall order, uh, a task that was, was never going to be easy, especially since, you know, we don't have Ryan Coogler directing anymore. Uh, instead, the sequel is in the hands of uh, relatively unknown director uh, Stephen Cable Jr. And uh, the consensus among most of the reviews seems to be that Creed 2 is pretty good, uh, a solid sequel, but not quite as good as the original Creed. It is um, definitely has some great moments in it. It does a lot of things with uh, Adonis Creed. Um, 
as a character, especially when it comes to his relationship with Tessa Thompson's character and how that, that develops and their performances bring a lot to the table. But it sounds like a lot of um, the shortcomings from the movie and a lot of the reviews are that it adheres a little too much to the familiar Rocky formula and tries to draw upon the Rocky franchise a little too much when it comes to references and uh, a little bit of fan service here and there and things like that, rather than continuing to carve out its own legacy in the way that Creed did by, you know, not feeling so much like another Rocky sequel, but it felt like a a new approach to something that had some familiar elements, but was able to sort of stand on its own. Uh, So it's um, a lot. No one was really like largely negative on it, which is a good thing. Um, But it does seem like that the movie does uh, struggle a little bit in the shadow of the original Creed, which makes sense considering, you know, uh, most of the Rocky sequels really never uh, held a candle to the original Rocky. I had to skip my Creed 2 screening this week because I had something else that I, I had to do. But, Ben, you got to see this movie. So wh- I did. Wh- what did. What did you think? Uh, I feel almost exactly the way that Brad just laid out. I think my thoughts mirror a lot of other people's about this film. It's not as good as the first Creed because that, that movie, um, it was almost like you didn't have to see any of the other Rocky movies to appreciate Creed because that movie sort of stood on its own even though it was in the shadow of that of that franchise and obviously Stallone reprised his role as Rocky Balboa, you could you could sort of get by by um, by pop culture osmosis. Like, uh, you know, even if you've never seen a Rocky movie, you know enough about the character to understand where Stallone was coming from and, and the, the history of that uh, of that character in Creed. But Creed 2, if you haven't seen Rocky 4, Creed 2 is not going to mean as much to you. So it, it's more like it's going back into the Rocky timeline or something. You know, it, it feels very familiar in that way. And it's like, even in in terms of like the structure of the story, it just feels like one of those really old school Rocky sequels. So, I mean, that's, that's good because those movies are like enjoyable for what they are. And this movie is very much the same thing. It's, it's enjoyable for what it is, but uh, it, it's just not... Um, it's not the the glorious achievement that the first Creed was. That is a little bit disappointing. I, I heard Tessa Thompson gets a little bit more to do this time around. Yes, that's true, and she is uh, is very good. And um, I mean, Michael uh, Michael B. Jordan is just great in this movie. And I, I was surprised actually with uh, Ivan Drago's son, uh, Victor Drago. How in Rocky Four, Ivan Drago is basically just a an android you know he's he's depicted as just like <laughs> this terminator human yeah exactly like a like a terminator human machine guy who just exists to beat the crap out of people and they try to actually give to to give some pathos to this young drago character and you know it, it's not uh, it's not the most brilliant screenwriting you've ever seen but i feel like it did a little bit more to make you feel for that character way more than you ever did for uh, Ivan Drago in Rocky IV. Very cool. I'm still excited to check this out. Uh, let's let's talk about um, Disney theme parks for a little bit. Uh, I know that Disney just revealed the first concept art for their new Spider-Man ride uh, today in the New York Times. We wrote about it for SlashFilm.com. But uh, the, the thing I actually want to talk about is that some new uh, details have emerged for the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge hotel that's being built in Orlando, Florida. Uh, ben, you you kind of tried to uh, decipher like these 
what are these blueprints? Yeah, it's like a floor plan because uh, apparently the uh, Disney had to file a permit with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And so they had to submit this floor plan. And I guess that's like a public record. So uh, these this one website called California Coaster Kings tracked this down and uh, has basically just been, you know, putting this out there and trying to speculate about what these different rooms and stuff are going to mean. So there's a lot of a lot of things to dig through here. But I think the, the most interesting oh, stuff is before. Before you get into this, we should say for those people that don't know, Star Wars, they're they're building a Star Wars hotel that's going to be like a two-day experience. You pay a lot of money, almost like as much money as you'd be paying to go on a cruise ship, and it's a fully immersive experience where you actually get uh, clothes to wear and a storyline, and there's, you know, droids and creatures, and, you know, you are not only living Star Wars in the park, but you are sleeping in, you know, space quarters and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I guess let's start there. The the cabins, the rooms where people are going to sleep, the on the first floor layout, there are 32 regular cabins and only two first class cabins. So we don't know what the second story. This is a two story building, by the way. So we don't know what the second floor looks like. But if they were to copy the first floor, and you know just duplicate that on the second floor, that means there are only going to be 68 rooms in the entire hotel. That is the smallest number of any in the Walt Disney World, uh, Walt, Walt Disney World Resort. So, you by, know, by, I, I by know. a large margin, like, yeah, yeah. You know, Most usually of them have like hundreds of rooms. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what we can uh, assume from that other than that, you know, Disney is not expecting these rooms to be, you know, th- this hotel is not being made for the masses is being made for a small group of people who are going to pay a lot of money to stay there is, is the message yeah. that I'm getting from it. Is that what you think, Peter? Yeah, I think it's going to cost, you know, uh, $500,000 a person. Like they're actually going to do per, uh, by person because it's going to be all inclusive, kind of like the cruise ships. So, uh, you know, it's not per hotel room. It's per person rate. Um, and it's it's a premium experience that you're actually going to get your own storyline. So I don't think they could do it like on the on a mass scale with hundreds of people. But I mm-hmm. think this is also like the first building that they've that they're going to do. They have land for one or two more. So this could expand dramatically. But I expect you know, knowing how fanatical Star Wars fans are that like when the hotel rooms for this go on sale, it's going to be booked up for like a year. Like, instantly. oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, you can you can go to the article at Slash Film. I've embedded some of these floor plans and there are a couple of different rooms here that uh, we're sort of speculating about trying to figure out what is going on. So one of them is called the dojo. And it's just, you know, there aren't any specifics about what's actually going to be in that room. So it's it's left to us to speculate, like, is this some sort of Jedi training ground? Are there going to be, like, uh, interactive experiences that people can have in there? There's also an area called the Brig, which I'm wondering if it, that's going to be, like, a, a temporary jail area <laughs> for guests who maybe get captured by, you know, stormtroopers or uh, break the space laws or something. You know, you could get thrown in the Brig. Um, there's also... Uh, an engineering room and i'm wondering if they're if they're you know the the entire uh, hotel is supposed to be a luxury starship so i wonder if this engineering room you might be able to like communicate with the captain of the ship and maybe <laughs> even like you know uh, suggest a different course heading and then you know there's going to be like stars flying by in the windows of every cabin and stuff so Maybe uh, the guests could, and this is just speculation on my part, it would maybe be like a fun thing they could do. The guests could sort of like point the 
quote unquote starship to different points in the galaxy. And then the view, the collective view of everyone staying there would change as the ship, you know, changes course. Like they have the potential to do stuff like that. Yeah, I'm very curious to hear more about this. Uh, I'm sure at D23 Expo next year, we'll we'll learn a lot more details about this hotel experience. Uh, I want to go there so bad, and I know that this is going to be like one of those things that's just like out of my price range, and I'll hesitate just that much. So it will be booked up with it, you know, for a year. <laughs> before I am able to pull the trigger. Um, but uh, Brad, I know you're also a big Star Wars fan. Is, is is a Star Wars hotel like this something you would love to experience, or is this, like, too much? No, no, I would absolutely love to do it, but um, I definitely can't. I'm not going to be able to afford uh, to do that. I'm sure that's going to be insanely expensive. And as much as I would like to do that, I just don't see it in the cards anytime, at least in the near future, unless uh, – you know, we start rolling in the dough real soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's uh, move on to Marvel from Disney, uh, from Disney Star Wars to Marvel. Uh, let's talk about uh, Sam Raimi, who has given us a, a little bit of trivia that, that he was at one time going to make a Thor movie. Yeah. So apparently back all the way back in 1991, way before uh, there were any major, you know, Marvel movies happening on the big screen. Uh, before there was even a superhero craze, really, uh, Stan Lee apparently reached out to Sam Raimi after he directed Darkman and wanted to work with him on something. And Sam Raimi was interested in making a Thor movie. So apparently him and Stan Lee got together and they uh, wrote up a whole treatment and figured out what they wanted to do and took it around town and pitched it. But nobody was interested. This was This was, you know, a time when... Everyone thought comic books uh, only had a niche audience and there wasn't really any uh, money to be made by doing that. And even this was even in the wake of the success of Tim Burton's Batman. People still thought that that was a fluke and that taking on any other uh, comic book movies was a risky endeavor. So uh, it just it never came together, never happened. And then as and, we know, and this is even a few years after Thor's uh, infamous appearance in Adventures in Babysitting. <laughs> that that is true and, uh the, there was that wonderful appearance by uh vincent d'onofrio as thor yeah um that but, uh, been... oh go on yeah so, well but as, um what's what's cool is as as we all know sam raimi went on to uh direct spider-man but even though he had worked with stan lee in the past apparently he wasn't too keen on having stan lee make a cameo in spider-man uh, he just felt like it was kind of a weird thing to do, like um, a play director being forced to put Shakespeare in, in one of the play productions. Uh, but Avi Arad said, he's like, well, we did this in X-Men and we want to do it here, so we need to do it. Uh, but, and Sam Raimi even says, he's like, but now it's one of my favorite moments in the movie. He's like, so clearly I was wrong. I'm glad that that ended up happening. Uh, like, I feel like it does annoy me a little bit because I, I know Ben uh described in the water cooler this week uh how you know people <laughs> get up and point at like a thing during the movie and i feel like stanley's that thing that like all the normal people like are like oh my god did you see that stanley that's the guy that whatever and it's kind of annoying but i i i kind of love the cameos uh ben are you are you annoyed by the stanley cameos 
I'm not annoyed by the cameos at all. I'm annoyed by people's reactions <laughs> to the cameos. It's like, it, you know, it's been happening for so many years now. You're no longer special if you recognize Stan Lee. Like, that's the entire point. There's no need to, like, elbow the person next to you and be like, ah, ah, you see? You see? And I don't know. Maybe it's a thing that happens more in Los Angeles than anywhere else because, uh, you know, living in the city for almost 10 years, it's like there's so much performative stuff going on here. Like even people just sitting in a movie theater can't just have an experience. They have to do something to to, you know, attract the attention of everyone else in the movie theater. So I, I'm curious to, as to like for our listeners to write in and let us know if that if that kind of thing happens elsewhere or if that's just people in L.A. trying to be cool and like, you know, point out that they're in the know and they, you know, they recognize the Stanley cameo 0.3 seconds faster than their friend did or something. I don't know. I think that's probably a nationwide thing, but correct us if we're wrong. And I'm actually, um, I don't know. I, I know I keep on pitching this, uh, Marvel one shot TV series that probably will never happen, but it would have been cool. Now it's not, not, now it's not possible, but it would have been cool if they could have came out with the one shots, episode showing Stan Lee as the watcher and how all the cameos, you know, it's one person and how it all, you know, connected that story, like connected his story in some way. I think that would have been uh, fun, but uh, we, we will not get that now. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to Filmstruck because we were talking about that uh, yesterday, I think <laughs> we were talking about, we were theorizing you know, uh, Filmstruck has been canceled. People were kind of upset about this. Filmmakers wrote letters to Warner Brothers. And we were theorizing on the podcast that uh, that we think that this film, you know, the content from Filmstruck was going to be rolled into Warner Brothers unannounced streaming service. And it turns out that might actually be the case. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so uh, late yesterday afternoon, Deadline had a report that says that John Stankey, who is the CEO of Warner Media, is working on something of a compromise for those who still want to uh, access the uh, the uh, library that Filmstruck offered. Which is, uh, for those who maybe don't know, Filmstruck is a streaming service that offered you know rare, classic, foreign, art house, independent films and the whole of the Criterion Collection. And uh, Deadline says the promising news is that a new iteration is in the cards for film struck though it may it may not be called that the new or the not good news is that it will be part of a package of streaming services from warner media that at present is scheduled to be launched in the fourth quarter of 2019 so the outcry from people like Christopher Nolan and Ryan Johnson and Barry Jenkins and Bill Hader and all of the celebrities who have come forward quote unquote might quicken the pace of warner media in making a decision but we aren't sure exactly what that is going to entail, or at least we weren't until just now when we're starting to record this podcast. And I just got this uh, press release email that says the Criterion channel is going to be launching an independent streaming service that is going to be available in spring of 2019. So Criterion and WarnerMedia announced uh, in a joint statement today that a new chapter for the Criterion films is coming in 2019. It's, it's basically going to be a freestanding streaming service that is going to be uh you know, it, it, Warner Media is going to be launching their own streaming service next year, and all of the Criterion stuff is going to be on that. But in addition, they're doing this uh, independent streaming service that's going to be available in the spring of next year to give people the chance to sort of pick up where Filmstruck left off. So that's what we know at this point. 
That's very interesting. Would, would you be – I mean you didn't subscribe to Filmstruck, right? I didn't, but I – you know, if there was a uh, – I, I was close to pulling the trigger a couple times. Would this be enough to make you pull the, uh, the trigger, a combination of this – you know, that content and Criterion? Um, it might be. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'll have to see exactly what happens, but I think, yeah, this might be something that I'm, I'm certainly interested and, um, I'll, I'll have to like really drill down in the details and make sure that all of this stuff is going to be available, you know, elsewhere and, or, or isn't going to be available elsewhere, uh, to make sure that it's, it's sort of like the most bang for your buck and they don't have any price information or anything like that in this press release yet. But, um, but well, yeah, with I, criterion I, involved, you know, it's going to cost 30 bucks a month. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'm, jo- um, I'm joking. I, I, <laughs> those criterion discs just cost way too much. If, if you don't buy them at like one of those Barnes and Noble, like sales, like you're broke. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it says the Criterion channel will be picking up where Filmstruck left off with thematic programming, regular fe- uh, filmmaker spotlights and actor retrospectives featuring major classics and hard to find discoveries from Hollywood and around the world. So um, they're also going to have like commentaries and behind the scenes footage, original documentaries, stuff like that, too. So, uh, yeah, this is, is good news for anybody who was really um, you know heartbroken about the Filmstruck decision. Very cool. Um, let's move on to our last and final story. And that is. News on the other side of the streaming world. Uh, we've been kind of wondering, what is Apple doing? Actually, we, we still don't know what they're doing. But uh, we we have a little bit of sense of, of what is going on now because they have acquired the, the rights to uh, – well, they're, they're acquiring new movies from A24. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, Apple has joined forces with A24, which is the company that has distributed movies like Moonlight, Spring Breakers, and Hereditary, Lady Bird, a ton of other stuff, to produce a new slate of movies. So this is a multi-year agreement, and we don't know really anything else beyond that. Um, there's, you know, we're we're trying, we've speculated in our article about whether or not uh, Apple's new movies with A24 are going to potentially have to follow the same sort of strict guidelines that the company's TV shows have to follow because the Apple TV shows that have not uh, debuted yet, but have many, many, many of them have been ordered are going to be extremely family friendly, you know, no sex or extreme violence or anything that really wouldn't be acceptable on the wall of an Apple store. So I'm sort of thinking that if Apple is getting into the movie game, they're probably going to want to also have those uh, properties streaming in, you know, or just like up on a a TV on a wall of an Apple store as well. So I I would guess that, you know, we're not going to see any like hard R stuff to come out of this deal, but I I don't know. Because what what are the movies that a 24 is kind of like most known for? I mean, yeah, I would say like films like the witch and eighth grade and lady bird and uh, ex machina, um, you know, more, yeah, moonlight for sure. Uh, more, more adult oriented films. It's not necessarily things that are in the, you know, PG or PG 13 range. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of R rated content in their library so far. So, uh, this is, you know, there were rumors last year that Apple might actually buy A24 outright, uh, you know, as a as a way for them to get a foothold in the movie industry. But it seems like that hasn't happened yet. It seems like this is just this is just a distribution, like a, a producing deal uh, between the two of them. We also don't know if these movies that they're going to make 
are going to be going straight to theaters or if Apple is just going to put them straight to the new streaming service that they're going to launch. Or maybe if it's not a streaming service, then just, you know, the, the place where all of its TV content ends up being streaming. It could just be like the TV app or something where we're not 100 percent sure uh, we haven't. Uh, you know, some some reports came out that said that. Uh, a lot of the TV shows are going to be available to, uh, for free on Apple devices, but Apple themselves has not officially revealed anything about that yet. It just seems so weird to me. Like, I, I know there's been a lot of press on how Apple is going to try to keep this family friendly on, on their streaming service. And I think that's probably people are assuming too much. I just think it means they're, they're probably not going to have nudity and they're probably not going to have, like, you know, excessive violence. Um, I, I don't think that the, that, that, that means that there isn't going to be adult content on there. Um, but a 24 just doesn't seem like if you wanted to make a deal with a company for, you know, something that's kind of more in the Apple brand, that just doesn't, a 24 is not one of the first I would think of. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I, I really like a lot of the movies that A24 has put together. So I, I sort of like where Apple's head is, you know, in terms of like picking a, a, a place that represents quality. But uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do in the film space because they've spent, you know, uh, or they said that they were going to spend a billion dollars on original content in their first year. And it seems like they've certainly racked up a pretty high bill you know, with a lot of their TV stuff. So it'll be interesting to see if they, you know, if they're looking to like what kind of movies that they're interested in making as a company. Like, I just feel like, like a better, I don't know, a more, uh, brand compatible thing is like Disney. Like Apple has enough money that they could buy Disney and still be like one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, that's how much money they have. But this A24 deal seems weird. Uh, Brad, do you have any thoughts on this? I'm just curious to see what kind of content they create. and Because honestly, it would be kind of interesting if A24 started digging into that realm of content that is a little bit more geared towards a wider audience, maybe even somewhat family-friendly. If only because they they make such unique choices in what movies that they support that we might start to get a little bit more interesting and original ideas um, in, in the family comedy realm than what we usually see from, you know, the major studios. So I'm, I'd be interested to see if, the, if they're going to do something like that simply because I think it would, you know, shake up the norm of from what we usually get from those kinds of movies. Yeah, well, and, and A24 has been known to be disruptive to this industry. It, it's going to be interesting, I think, in these coming years because as – I think, you know, three years from now, I think we're going to see Netflix, we're going to see Amazon, we're going to see Disney. Those are going to be the three major streaming services. Maybe Warner Brothers will get in there, uh, obviously like Hulu. But, um, and I feel like all these other companies, they're going to try and fail to make streaming services. And what's going to need to happen is they're going to need to align themselves with one of those, like, you know, three or four big pillars. Like, we're going to see lots of deals like this A24 deal, I think with uh, some of these companies in the future. Uh, just a matter of, like, you know, how it shakes out. Um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting indeed. Uh, Brad, where can people find more of your work online? Slashfilm.com is where I write about movies and TV. You can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And check out my podcast, Go Flix Yourself, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Ben, where can we find you? 
You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com as well, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. You can find me at SlashFilm on all social media. You can find all the stories we talked about today on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please go to our iTunes page. Write us a glowing five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Imagine you spend, you know, $1,000 a person to go to, like, the Star Wars hotel. And then you, you get arrested. Like, in the first five minutes, you get arrested by a stormtrooper and you're in the brig. For the entire time, <laughs> I don't think it would be the entire time. I feel like they would have to put like a uh, a maximum amount of time on there of like I don't know ten minutes or something because that would yeah people would be very very angry at that. Plus, it could be a really nice brig. Maybe they like they'll bring you like you know a, a hot sandwich or something. It looks kind of small on the uh, on the blueprint. <laughs> oh, so you can't eat a sandwich in a confined space, Peter? <laughs> I don't know about you, Brad, but I can't eat a sandwich in a kind of confined space. You never have elbow room. No. You've never eaten a sandwich in a car before. What are you doing? Like throwing throwing elbows around while you're eating a sandwich? Like get away from my sandwich. There, there, there are no sandwiches in space. Uh, I mean, to be fair, we haven't seen a sandwich in space, so you might be right as far as Star Wars movies are concerned. All we know is there's that bread that you can that Ray has that like grows. There's supposed to be a buffet in there, and I wonder if just that bread is going to be the only item on the on the buffet. I mean, there's there's a whole diner in Attack of the Clones, so there's got to be sandwiches there, right? It was actually interesting. Solo, a Star Wars story, like. In the you know the climactic third act, like there's like this close up of uh, Dryden Voss has like some kind of like plate of food that I think he offers uh, Solo, and they show like this weird close up of it, which either to me feels like they they needed a cutaway to edit two pieces of footage together, or they were like put a close up of this because we're planning on having this food in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, and we need to put it someplace <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> I mean, am I thinking too far into this? Too close? Seems like a lot of effort. I don't know. Like, I just like you go to you go to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. You want butter beer or English food. You go to like if if you go to the Star Wars Galaxy, what kind of food or drink do you want? Like, I guess blue milk. Yeah, yeah, that's the the clear one. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I. I... <laughs> I wonder if there's like a comic book that uh, that could answer this question for us, Peter. Yeah, the the, the next standalone movie is going to be food, a Star Wars story. <laughs> Brad, we need to get you in there for the water cooler. Yes, please. I would love to have blue milk and a Star Wars sandwich.